Hi everyone, it's Jody. Welcome to this episode of Mummy Brain Revisited. On this episode, I'm going to be talking with Associate Professor Devlina Pradhan from Idaho State University, and we're going to be talking about her really interesting research on neurosteroids, fatherhood, and sex changing in fish. Yeah, so do listen for more. I also want to note that Devlina has positions available in her lab for PhD students and a postdoc, so do get in touch if you're interested in her research. Okay, so let's get started. So first of all, I also wanted to give a little background to how we know each other because we shared an office together, right? Yes. Remember those days? Yeah, of course. How can I forget? A little bit behind me. Yeah, and I always think of you uh, to my right. So you were always over there at your microscope, counting things when needed. didn't you a little have an fish on your desk. I had a little yeah. fish that uh, I tried to keep alive, and it, eventually it didn't. <laughs> it didn't okay. survive, really. <laughs> well, that's interesting because today we're going to be talking about your research on fish. <laughs> but before we get into that, <laughs> tell me how you got interested in studying the parental brain and behavior. Yeah. So. It, 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 you know, I don't know if like studying fish is separate from getting interested in studying parental brain and behavior necessarily, but I, I guess there is like, if I want to go way back and I was thinking about this. Um, so if I want to go way back, um, I had, I had love words for pets, uh, because I lived in an apartment in Mumbai and, uh, my dad was really against getting, you know, mammals inside a tiny apartment because he grew up in you know a house uh like a really really big house that had lots of different pets and lots of different animals um and all that so he brought in birds he brought in those love birds and they were it was nice and compact in a little cage and and uh the highlight for us was always whenever the birds laid eggs and then us giving them like material to build their nests. Um, and then you know, like initially, like the birds would lay eggs just inside the cage. And then, you know, we got a nest box in and then we gave them, we put like, it was all these things that we did. And then watching, watching the, um, you know, the parents take turns incubating. So they're biparental and mostly it was the mom giving care. Uh, and then coming out, out of there and then having seen the fledglings or not yet fledglings, but really the new chicks learning how to fly, learning wow. to be independent. That was a big highlight growing up. And I, you know, I think that that's where my love of animal behavior started and yeah. also so that was mostly it. Like it was my love of animal behavior. And then like that part was kind of, yeah, like watching Chick um, grow up was really cool. And the parental investment was really cool. Uh, but it wasn't until um, my undergraduate education again and like 
uh, you know, Wayne Goody taught us animal behavior in biology at UBC. And there's all these things that he talked about chicks and, you know, like that took me back to those days, but I still didn't really think about parenting as like something I wanted to study. Like many people, I wasn't sure what I was going to do and after my undergraduate degree, but then um, it was after my master's when I started my PhD, that is when my um, interest in parenting really rekindled. So, Oh, oh interesting. Yeah. And so then tell us what, I mean, tell us about your research on yeah. parenting. <laughs> Right. Because that's kind of like it's very organically like that was it. Like it wasn't something that I went in to study parenting yeah. in the lab. Um, and so the fish that we've been we studied um, and, you know, my history, I've been going from birds to uh, fish. I went back to birds and then I'm back to fish. But that's because and now my grant is on fish. But I mean, I'm always open to studying, you know, the biological questions. Yeah. And so I was really interested in aggression initially mm. and aggressions, um, studying the animals and hierarchies. And so, um, and these uh, blue banded gobies, they are, they are ideal to study um, aggression and hierarchy formation because I mean, in some ways they're small and you can like contain them in, a, in smaller places when you're in the lab. Otherwise they're a marine fish and it's extremely difficult to study them in the wild. But bringing them into the lab, you see all kinds of behaviors. It's so rich, like just within a few minutes, you can just see a display of all, a whole repertoire. And in the lab, they studied sex change. It was a sex change lab, you know. Um, but uh, for me, the most striking thing was not necessarily studying sex change and all of that. Um, but it was also just watching um, the fish that was the parent, because that fish would not leave the nest and spent 90% mm. of its time inside the nest. And so um, when I was just watching the fish and getting to learn things, I, I felt like the parenting aspect would be really cool to study because so far all the research had focused on what goes on outside the nest because that's where the whole, um, the dominant hierarchies are sorted out. Um, okay. And because it's a, uh, it's like, and, and I'll have to explain to you how that, you know, how that happens because it's a really big part of the parenting process, actually. So, yeah. But so before we get into that, it's okay. Yeah. So the fish is called, you said blue banded goby. Yeah. Yeah. And they're sex changing fish. So yes, just because this is something we haven't talked about, uh, maybe uh -huh. just fill us in on what happens and how, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. how the piece. system is. Yes, because I mean, it is a really important piece. Um, uh, so basically, they live, these fish, they're group living, they live in a polygamous society. And so okay. 
whatever it means, like our preconceptions in terms of what polygamous means is very different for the fish in some ways, because um, yes, it's by definition polygamous because there are several females in a group and one male, and that's the okay. rule. You can only have one male and several female, but there is an exception to that. And we can talk about that later. <laughs> there is an exception, you can ask me about that. Uh, but um, what happens is that if the most, uh, that, that male is supposed to be the most dominant, even though he doesn't constantly aggress. So okay. he's dominant, but he's not, he's not out there fighting for dominance constantly. <laughs> It's actually the females that are constantly fighting for dominance. And once right. the male is established, he takes up his nest. And his job, so to speak, is to defend that nest and those eggs that are in the nest. But okay. that space is his territory. Okay. And then where does the sex changing come in? Yeah. So if that male is removed from that, or if he dies, or if a, another more dominant male comes by, then it's basically a contest between those two males. And the male that takes over the nest is now the new male, or like has taken over as the most dominant, so to speak, has taken over that ter ter territory, is the parenting fish, and that other male is actually driven by the social group, uh, driven by the lower status that it has to the other male to change sex, or they will die. Like, okay. They either fight to the death to keep their territory. Right. And so it's very difficult to study that process because um, they don't really want to change back in which they are bi-directional sex changers. So, okay. I was going to ask this. Yeah. So it's bi-directional. So at the male level, because we're talking about parenting, that's why I centered it there because yeah. <laughs> but this is some new research from my lab, but in the past, basically you remove the male and the most dominant female takes over the nest and becomes the new male. Okay. Over time. So, this so everything changes. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's just a little background for the listeners on the sex changing yes. aspect. Yeah, yes. aspect, which is not the focus, but just to know. That but it there is are an animals. important aspect, but, but it is very fluid. So these sex roles, you know, or these gender roles that we've established in our society and the sex roles in fish. And in, in when people and biologists study about these things where oh, all of a sudden it's not the female taking care of the, you know, the babies, but it's the male. It's called sex role reversal. Okay. In, in, although we have some problems with that in modern biology, but it's yeah. considered sex role reversal because, you know, it's understood widely that, you know, females are the more, um, are the primary caregivers. Although that is not completely true, um it's right in, in many species uh it is understood that females are and so if a male is taking care then that's sex role reversal yeah okay and also to clarify these aren't the only sex changing fish 
Oh no, not at all. No, no, there are seven. Yeah. This is one kind. So, so blue-banded gobies, what's or latrypinus dali, what's special about them is that they're bidirectional. There are yeah. other sex-changing fish that are, you know, so-called model species in, um, in biology uh, that are uh, basically wrasses, blue-headed wrasses. And okay. there's clownfish, and everybody's heard of Finding Nemo. So yeah. wrasses go only from, uh, only go from female to male. Okay. And then clownfish can only go from from male to female. Okay. So, so this is they're the only one directional, but yeah. our fish can go both ways, and there are other fish that can go both. Okay. But our fish, um, but our fish are a little bit easier to study in that sense. But anyway, we can talk about that more. Okay. Uh, no, based I on what questions to, you have. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just wanted to establish a basic understanding because I think it's we don't often talk about sex changing animals and and just to yeah. normalize that this happens. And then uh, but then uh -huh. in the parenting context, this is actually quite interesting because you're saying the yeah. male is the primary parent and part of what he does is defend the nest. Yes. Yeah. And so that could be classified as the paternal aggression. Yeah. Uh, in contrast with maternal aggression that I'm sure many of your, uh, the people you interview study maternal aggression. Yeah, yeah, we haven't had so much on maternal aggression, but we all talk about like being a mama bear, um, right? Right, sure. like moms, you know, watch out for the mom kind of thing. Um, yeah, but, yeah. But in this case, we're watching out for the dad. Yes, with your fish. <laughs> so, yes. so tell us about your research then. Okay, so you know, so now it's hard to separate the sex change from parenting because what I found in my one step my first study when I was trying to focus on parenting I realized that I really cannot separate it because mm. um so um this was back you know a little over 10 years ago when I first studied parenting it was initially just to quantify okay what constitutes parenting behavior how do you describe it Okay. okay. And so with most fish that are parents, um, you know, fish usually have external fertilization. Yeah. And so they'll have a brood of eggs that they're watching over, but it's not just that they're watching over. They actually interact quite a bit with their eggs. Okay. So, so in salmon, you know, fish of the females uh, make these territories called reds, R-E-D-D. -D. Okay. And okay. the females aggressively defend those reds um, oh. in salmonids. Okay, so, you know, trout, salmon, all, all of those. Um, in our uh, fish, it's the males that they, they take up the, you know, in the wild, it could be a hole in the coral. So they like spaces that are dark and, um, you know, not easily, you know, uh, e easily identified. Or it could be even like the undersurface of an abalone shell. So they like darker crevices, basically. And uh, the parenting behavior is basically the male uh, fanning and rubbing his 
eggs. And so basically the, the fanning are using both their pectoral fins and then their caudal fins. And so it appears like they're waggling their tails um, uh, and like, you know, profusely moving their pectoral fins. So it's, they're aerating. But they're also rubbing their body. Basically their genitalia are underneath the ventral side. And so they're rubbing closely on the eggs. And so during that process, they also, like other gobies, um, they, pro they probably, and other parenting fish, they probably spew antibiotics over the eggs oh. as part of the nurturing. And, okay. and so that's, so fanning, keeping, you know, algae away, their that area is actually very clean where the eggs are. And so to have that area, um, you know, free of bacteria, uh, they're constant or other things, other microorganisms or other things that might eat eggs. They're constantly um, cleaning that area. They could also be picking out bad eggs. And during that time when they have eggs and they're actively parenting, they're not even getting out to eat for the most part. And so when we feed them, like we see that the males are in the nest for like at least 90% of the time they're inside the nest. And when they're fanning and rubbing, which happens for um, a good amount of that time, they, you know, they'll take rest, but it's a very energetic process because they're using their fins at high speed and they're going all around. Like, in fact, their favorite position <laughs> seems to be upside down. <laughs> and, and they're like basically going all over. The eggs adhere to the surface by filaments. And so, the, the, so when it's um, a tube, nest tube full of eggs, the male goes all the way around it inside and keeps fanning. So he moves his body. Uh, and it's a very, it's like a, it's like an acrobatic display, really. It's, there's a lot going on there. So oh, initially I couldn't really, yeah, I couldn't really quantify it because it's like, it couldn't really separate the behavior. So it's like, okay, it's all just parenting, fanning and rubbing as soon as they start doing that. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. happening really fast. Okay. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, my first study was just kind of trying to see what happens. Like, how do these males spend the time parenting? Because in the past, it was just a hormone study of fish parenting versus not parenting and versus females who do not parent. And it was found that in circulation, fish that parent they have higher levels of ketotestosterone, which is the, a, ma a male typical hormone because, but even females have ketotestosterone. But during parenting, during the phase of parenting, when it's an experienced dad, not a first timer, but an experienced dad has higher levels of ketotestosterone in circulation. And so that was just one study. And uh, so I was very interested, like there was new data coming out of the lab at the time showing that uh, ketotestosterone levels are eight times higher in the brain compared to the gonad. 
Wow. And we generally assume that when you're circ- when you have circulating testosterone or any sex steroids uh, that are the general sex steroids, they're coming from the gonad. Um, however, yeah. here, um, and, and I had done a study where I implanted fish with uh, inhibitor of, test- of keto testosterone production. And that inhibitor, it's actually used to study stress in human. It's actually given to humans and it's derived from licorice. And it's, it's um, yeah, it, it's used for, uh, to, uh, to treat Cushing syndrome. Okay. And interestingly, it's the same enzyme that produces keto testosterone. And so if you block that enzyme, you predict that, um, you know, all of the hormone, all of the functions related to keto testosterone will be inhibited. Yeah. Right. If you block the production of that hormone, you would block whatever functions, but you know, hormones have pleiotropic effects, right? So like you don't really know what you're blocking and, or there's lots of different, uh, functions that are associated with the same sex hormone. And so, um, yeah, so my first study, I wasn't really looking at any behavior, but I found that a systemic implant, so just implanting them intraperitoneally, actually, it took down keto testosterone levels only temporarily. Okay. So then the, just to recap, so then the keto, the idea was like the keto testosterone is higher in the parent, the dad, parent. Uh, yes. dad fish, uh, yes. and it's even higher with reproductive experience. So then you wanted to block the keto testesterone and you did this just yes. peripherally, not in the brain. Exactly. It's also Initially, in the brain, but the first step was to look, Yeah. if exactly. you stop it, what happens? Exactly. To, the parenting behavior specifically? Yes. I mean, I was not only interested in the parenting, but like what happens with this pathway. Okay. So that was my first summer. Like, can I even use this? Because we in fish, that this kind of work has never been done before. And this okay. drug had not been used in this context at all. Like for it was used in in glucocorticoid research quite a bit in rodents. Yeah. And so I had to see whether this would even work. So initially I looked at whether this um, would work to affect the pathway. And Mm. I wasn't necessarily studying parenting at that time because it was still in my, I was still like forming those ideas. It was my first summer. And so I was still getting to know the research. I was uh, trying to learn these techniques. So the first step was for me, I thought, okay, let's block this. Just let's peripherally block it or like just let's block it and see what happens. And what happened is that 24 hours later, um, the the hormone levels systemically, keto testosterone levels went down. Mm -hmm. But four days later, it went up again. Okay. And it wasn't a small amount. Like I had given it a pr- quite a super physiological amount. And so 
what I found out later is that in, in rodents, this drug does not cross the blood-brain barrier. So it's possible that it only blocked peripheral uh, production. And generally, when I just as examined the fish, they all seemed to be doing what they usually do. I didn't seem to block any behavior. I wasn't necessarily studying the behavior or recording all of the nuances, but just by watching, there wasn't any change. Uh, it was just a temporary transient decrease. And then something happened. And so that led me to hypothesize that, the, you know, when I found out that this drug doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, I hypothesized that we needed to do a more central manipulation to see the effect because it's because uh, other data, parallel uh, data was coming out saying that the brain has eight times more ketotestosterone levels than the gonad. Mm, so, okay. so yeah, so that's when we have to go in and centrally um, manipulate this hormone. And that, uh, that was a two-year process um, because the first year was just trying to figure out what dose to use and how to do it. And so we saw that, I mean, it was clear fish that were, and I was blind to the experiment and everybody else, the whole, I had a huge team helping me both years uh, to do this experiment. And I was blind to the drug treatment and we had four different groups. We had a, a group of fish that were given the vehicle, which was just the phosphate buffer that this was dissolved in. And then we had um, one group of fish that was given carbonoxalone, this drug, and another group of fish that were given carbonoxalone plus ketotestosterone. Okay. So that was looking at whether or not that could keep giving that ketotestosterone back would rescue the effect of the drug. And then we had yet another group in our final uh, year, like we did all of these together, uh, was that we gave that fi those uh, fish cortisol. So cortisol is the primary glucocorticoid. And this is a hormone with which it has a seesaw effect. So if you block that enzyme using this drug, then ketotestosterone should go down, but cortisol should go up. So it's, a, it's quite a unique position because these, the, both these hormones are regulated by the same enzyme. And so, you know, you need to figure out, is this effect of the drug causing a change in parenting due to ketotestosterone or is it the glucocorticoid? And so, you know, if you have higher glucocorticoid, it could be more stressful, you know, so that could reduce parenting in a way. So what this, happened yeah. is- Although yeah. I just want to throw this out there that cortisol is also important for maternal memory and lactation in mammals. Oh, so it's gosh, not just yes. a stressor. So Yes, but we so won't get I don't into like this, the but... word stress hormone, but actually you are so right. So this, you know, 10, fast forward 10 years, and we found something else that could really explain. So cortisol was, did not get affected. I mean, cortisol did not affect that parenting at all. Okay. Yeah. So we basically manipulated, we gave it high levels of cortisol 
it did not, it was like nothing happened. And uh, so, um, and then with the uh, keto testosterone, it rescued the effect. And so when the males that were given carbonoxalone, they were hanging out, outside the nest tube. And usually the fish, like they are so side attached. The males are usually very, very side attached. You know, yeah. we often take out the nest tube to just examine what's in there. And the males, they don't care that they're going to be out of air. Like they come out with the tube. Like they do not want to, yeah, yeah. like most fish jump out of the nest, but they will stay with the nest. So they do not want okay. to leave their nest. And to me, that was really fascinating. Yeah. So then you block the keto testosterone in the brain. Yes. Yeah. And then they were not. They attending. were outside. It was like watching a mini movie. Yeah. So basically we put back, we've taken out all the fish from the nest to prevent the female from taking over. Yeah. And so when, when we get after the fish recovered from the central injection, we put the male in first a minute before the females. And in all the other cases or most like and definitely the vehicle cases within that minute, like the latency to enter the nest again was, you know, less than a minute for the vehicles. And for fish that had CBX alone, many of them never entered the nest again within the first hour that we, we studied them for an hour and they never entered the nest. And then uh, those who did enter, they had a latency of 40 minutes wow. to enter the nest. Yeah. So, so the yeah, go ahead. No, so the conclusion of this is I mean, definitely keto testosterone is important for parenting because yeah. we manipulated this very single pathway and you could see that right away. There was no doubt. Yeah, and it's no doubt. And it's central, like it's really the brain neurosteroid levels that is important. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um but there was this other thing going on <laughs> uh, because, you know, like keto testosterone also regulates aggression and social yeah. behavior in general. So in this context, though, the male was outside the tube and the females were interacting with him. And he was he was exhibiting regular aggression okay. um, that he usually does. But he just wasn't inside. The context was different. He wasn't inside the nest, but he was outside. So keto testosterone didn't affect its general aggression or other kinds of social behavior patterns. Okay. Um, and uh, during that time when he was outside, we got to see a totally different scene, which was totally serendipity. And that was that the females, like they started like, so I had two females in the nest and the females would go interact. They would take turns to interact with the male and then go back into the nest because, you know, they want to take over the nest because they're like, oh, is he really not coming back? I'm going to go inside. And what they started doing is that they started grazing on the eggs. So they started eating eggs. Um, because it's extra protein. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the females, and so within 
the 20, uh, within the hour, there was like a 25% almost egg loss when the male was not in the nest. So the male is clearly defending his nest against predators that could be even females who have laid those eggs themselves um, or um, anybody else who might want to come eat the eggs, right? So the females, uh, so both the higher ranking and the lower ranking female were eating the eggs, but eventually halfway through the higher ranking female started both eating the eggs and displaying parenting at the same time. Okay. So started to show the beginnings of fanning and rubbing and, and kept the, so here going chomp, chomp, chomp. And then also rub, kind rub, of fans. trying to aerate. It was like, yeah, it wasn't rubbing, but it was fanning. And so was showing these, wow, like it was almost confused <laughs> about what it should be doing. And then towards the end of the hour, that fish was not eating the eggs anymore, was exclusively fanning. And, and then did she turn into a male? Well, we only gave her that hour because we ended the experiment. Okay. Although, but eventually she would have if she yeah. was not. And so in the past for these experiments are, um, you know, our lab had used to actually clean out the nest tube. Like they would take, they would give it a fresh nest tube so that they, so they had never seen eating eggs um, because the females were uh, always given a new nest tube and, and they were mostly studying female to male sex change because that's just easier to study. And they were studying that outside the nest tube, you know, watching what's going on outside. It's harder to look into and fixate into a darker, smaller space. So generally, we always studied hierarchy formation outside, but people didn't look at the formation. So here, in, in some ways, it's this initiation of parenting um, yeah. in that female. But now it's transitioning already right so it's not really a female so behaviorally it's showing these different patterns and what we did is that we harvested the brain and the gonad of these females and we found that females that displayed parenting so I just took all of the females from the study and though and separated them as those who displayed parenting versus those that didn't and there were 14 of them that displayed parenting and 21 that didn't because of how the groups were. And so in those fish that displayed parenting, all of those females had higher levels of ketotestosterone in the brain compared to the fish that did not display parenting. Interesting. And their gonads, the um, they had a reduction. They had lower amounts of estradiol okay. in their gonad compared to females that had higher levels of estradiol that that didn't, didn't parent. Yeah. So then my question, when thinking about this, is like, how, how did it switch? That's the question. <laughs> Okay. I'm like, what That's happened? What happened in the brain? Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, clearly that's showing, my question. Yeah, the keto testosterone is important for parenting behavior in these fish. But then this is so interesting. You start to see this transition in parenting behavior, like to parenting behavior that's paralleling the brain levels and the peripheral levels of hormone. But then how does it like, when does this switch and why to- I don't know. I mean, it's quick, right? Yeah, it's yeah. quick. It's so quick. So that's really hard to step. I mean, that's that's what keeps me in the business. Okay. I don't know. It is a conundrum. <laughs> We don't know how that's happening. Yeah. Oh, but it's it's also really fascinating. Again, we're obviously seeing in fish that, you know, a lot of the parenting behavior is hormone driven, brain hormone specific in this case, also peripheral. I mean, we don't know what this decrease in estradiol in the fish is doing exactly. But well, um, I mean, it's found um, actually from there was a collaboration with Dr. Grober, my advisor, and yeah. uh, Dr. Baltazar years ago. And they found that in females switching into males, like during that sex change process, levels of aromatase activity decrease in both the brain and the gonad. Okay. And so aromatase is what synthesizes estradiol. So you can imagine that a fish turning into a male that has, that has a reduction in estradiol production. But then in the brain, did you measure estradiol? We measured estradiol. There was no difference. So the reduction is in the gonads, but then in the brain. Um, at that not... time, our estradiol levels were not affected within the hour. Oh. But the but the keto testosterone was affected within that hour. Oh, this is so interesting, though. And and it's all st- stoichiometry, right? Because the hormones are all in in some ways connected and it's really hard to know what pathway is changing first and what second and to tease that apart so and i think i mean we often end up studying just one hormone one pathway one something when we talk about anything including the parental Mm -hmm. brain but we often forget that there's a huge interaction between a number of different systems exactly um, makes it a little bit more complex uh-huh investigate. yeah yep and so that's yeah. what brings us to like what I'm doing now what the funding agency bought my story and all of this and, it's a great and, story and these are the questions like hey you can't study just one hormone and of course like all of these hormones are changing at the same time um and so some of it could be status or social status related and some of it could be parenting related. And so we kind of have to do, uh, we have to try to parse this apart. And what are the triggers when, I mean, I think those trigger is very social. So okay. it's all about the social status. So it's a very visual thing for the fish in association with like that interaction that they need to verify, but they'll take over the nest tube and then start the process. So one aspect of my research, and you didn't ask me, but I'm just going, going ahead and telling you what's going on. Yeah, so yeah, so our most recent finding, which is being published, which is this year, our um, July issue of hormones and behavior, um, we're uh, actually going back to the cortisol question. We found that males 
have much skyrocketing levels, higher levels of cortisol in the brain compared to females. And so it's, it's possible that those fish are, you know, it could be, you know, in, in, in primate research, they talk about the, the, or the individual that is at the higher rank and the lower rank, they tend to have high levels of cortisol because, you know, either it's maintaining the status or it is, you know, being debunked or, you know, being at the lowest status. But also it could be dueled with, you know, it's a, a parenting is an energetic process for these fish. Yeah. They are for, just, for everyone, for everyone, for everyone, everyone here. Yeah. It's, it's not to do with stress, but it's to do with energetics. Yeah. And it's to do with those local regulation, um, local signaling in the brain. And, um, you know, it's just that process that needs glucocorticoids as mm -hmm. a, um, as not in the catabolic way, but in the anabolic way. Okay. And so that is also something, so we cannot leave. I used to shy away from studying stress, but really it's not stress. And it's about uh, glucocorticoids and they're like the large number of effects that they have. So, so we, we, you know, we figured out that, you know, we were probably giving, it's already at a ceiling amount. So when we were injecting them with cortisol, it wasn't going to make a difference because in the long term too, these fish just have high levels of cortisol when they're dads. And so, yeah. And so the other uh, part of my study, we are actually using high-speed videography to study what, to define what parenting really is. You know, which fins are they using? You know, how are they moving? And then with that, I want to try to manipulate the muscle hormones. Okay. To see whether it is a peripherally, um, you know, it's also for like, you know, to perform that behavior, um, you need the muscle brain connection, but then in, at the muscular level, do we have differences in um, hormones or like, you know, what kind of signaling patterns affect that? process. Oh, interesting. So that's getting at the peripheral control of specifically yes. of the behavior. Of the behavior itself and yeah. the formation of, and then also the fish learning to perform the behavior. So there's two parts, like looking at the male itself and seeing how he's performing the behavior, um, using its um, it's muscles, like muscle and fin connections. Yeah. And then, um, for the females as they're transitioning, so in transitioning fish, how are they actually using their fins? Because it oh. seems like they're, they are, so how does one learn to parent, so to speak, if that is a learning thing or, you know, how does it initiate those, the, that process? Yeah, so. I see this. This is a really interesting. So how does it, yeah, shift its behavior into parenting. Exactly. This is really exactly. interesting. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so that's what we're, we've got this really high speed. I'm collaborating with somebody at, uh, with the, Dr. Deetcha Seth at uh, Villanova University. She's a mechanical engineer. 
Okay. And with uh, some students that were doing their capstone project, we designed uh, a platform that we could use to standardize all our measurements for putting that high-speed camera. So a regular phone for context, a regular phone camera records at about 25 to 30 frames per second. Okay. And this camera will record up to 900 frames per second without losing, without losing the image quality. Wow. And, and so, I mean, it was a really expensive, it was like almost $12,000 for this camera. But I didn't necessarily, but, but, you know, she, she, Dr. Seth is our expert in robotics and stuff. And she, uh, according to her, like when I met her at a conference and showed her videos, you know, usually using a regular GoPro camera, she said that wasn't enough. Like that was not going to work because it's really, really fast. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, really fast just meant, okay, it's fast, but I didn't really know what that meant. But they are moving their fins at really, really high, high, high speed. And so we have to slow it down tremendously. It's, it's almost, I mean, it's a signal, like in some ways it is a social signal for the females to choose, you know, which male to have to um, mate with. So, you know, fanning has been seen as a social um, signal for mating, mate choice. Okay. as well in fish. So I'm not sure if that's happening in our fish, but it's it could. Um, and so, yeah, so it's really important uh, to study, you know, to really get down to it because it's, yeah, it's something where it's, it's movement in a certain way that's really going to affect the quality. And that's directly related to the health of those eggs that are going, that are um, being yeah, that are developing. Yeah, so. that was so interesting. Anyway, I also yeah. have other, like so many questions now. What about the eggs if the parents? Yeah, like, like what happens <laughs> to their development if they've switched? Yeah, really quick. This- yeah, really quick. There's no problem with like fostering. Like they'll they'll just take any. It's just a stimulus. Like I think just having something there or not there, like. Gobies lay sperm trails, whether or not. So, they, so that's another reason to study. Like, you don't have. They don't have to be parenting actively to, um, <laughs> to, to for us to study parenting because they're showing that same behavior of fanning and rubbing, regardless of whether there are eggs in there. Okay, but then usually it's specific to the egg for the male will be on the eggs and show those behaviors. It will, yes, For but it doesn't need to have it. Yeah. So they will show, so it's basically just, it's kind of ingrained I, in a way, I think. I don't know, the psychologists can help me figure out what this means cognitively, but the males are just so associated, like they're, it's kind of like robotic. Okay. And they're in their nest tube. It doesn't have to be that there are eggs in it for them to show those parenting type of behaviors. Okay. They're just constantly doing that. So and they don't so, need the eggs. No. But do the eggs need them? Yes. 
Yeah. Yes. So if so, there's a, this is why when he's out of the nest, females go in, the dominant female you showed eventually switches. Yes. Yeah. Because there's something yes. about the eggs, maybe. And there's something about that territory, but where their eggs will be laid. Yeah. Okay. So there's it's something... something about that association where they're going to take over because for the dad, it is basically it's group uh, reproductive success, right? It's not just one individual, but they're, it's their, their sperm are basically fertilizing eggs of multiple females. So it is in their best interest to keep all of those eggs. And so it's just something that's a part of their existence in a way, okay. if you had to put it that way, that they're always showing and they're always ready to be, to be dads, no oh. matter what. Oh, yeah. so, so then, <laughs> I mean, let's translate this to humans, can we? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> And the humans are you get them in all ways so yeah this is <laughs> true no I'm just thinking aspect. yeah I, but what I do like about this is also showing well parenting in animals is also takes place by different sexes right so yes. males will do it in some females and others both and there's all sorts there's a you know yeah. and I think this is a nice reminder that parenting is quite diverse um and naturally so in different species mm -hmm. so yeah and evolutionarily it's actually paternal care so uniparental care arose first and specifically paternal care and maternal care came later in oh. evolution oh, so really? so paternal care is more primitive and it you know and and so fish have all kinds of different care systems so that's where you have to look to find out uh, the evolution of uh, these behaviors and so yeah there's uniparental care and then you know like most most fish do not care for eggs I mean a long time ago like like most species in general just don't you know you need to have that survival on its own in a way but for fish that do care, paternal care is way more common than maternal care. Okay. Um, but also, you know, biparental care is also also occurs. But yeah, but maternal care is more recently evolved. Oh, oh so this is also really interesting, I think. And a good yeah. reminder is that it's not always been moms, everybody. We assume no. this, but this is not the case. <laughs> and dads are totally capable of taking care and sharing the responsibility. <laughs> yes, I know. We know this. So, so, you know, I think like in terms of the hormones, you know, like most people like associate testosterone as being something that's going to hamper that parenting or going to be deleterious in some way and that I mean I guess it's you know for when it comes to peripheral levels you know that has been shown in many species so I can't argue with that but I think it's more central than that and we don't have enough studies looking at bra the brain chemistry of being parents um, and I think we need a little bit more like more most studies focus on 
on peripheral. Um, yeah, yeah, especially, yeah, and especially actually in almost all the animals we study, really, I was going to say, especially humans, of course, because we're limited in what we can do in the brain. But I think yeah. in rodents as well, I mean, we could do more looking at the neurosteroid levels or understanding, especially in biparental species, what's going on mm-hmm. um, in that regard. Yeah. So California mice have been studied. They are biparental. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So it seems like uh, it's the brain levels of estradiol, maybe that might be important in those guys. Um, yeah. but, but then, yeah. So, I mean, it is very fascinating. You can study other species and I think we need to investigate the brain a little bit more. Yeah, it definitely, especially because we assume that our peripheral levels are hormones. Often we assume that that's what's in our brains and it's not. I mean, this is yes. your research is a clear example of that and reminder that there, there are significant differences between what's happening in our body and happening in our brain for good reason. Yes. Cool. Oh my goodness. Yes. Well, thank you for this journey through your research and yeah do you have anything else you'd like to add well thanks for having me and I guess a shameless plug I am looking for PhD students who are interested in uh, figuring out the biochemistry of all of this and also I'm looking for a postdoc and I have a postdoc funding available from next year oh awesome yes Great. So okay. That's my shameless plug. Thank you. Yeah. For, thank you for letting me do that. <laughs> no, definitely. And I think this is great research. So hopefully PhD potential PhD students and postdocs will be approaching you because this is quite fascinating. All these different questions that still need to be answered. It's really never ending. There's a no. lot to do. Well, thank you. Thank you. Questions, comments, suggestions, get in touch at Mommy Brain Revisited on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. You can also contact me on my website at jodipaluski.com. That's J-O-D-I-P-A-W-L-U-S-K-I.com. Looking forward to hearing from you.
after I 